Hi, and welcome to CM Pod, the podcast for curious minds. I'm Kelly O'Loughlin. And I'm Ran Levy. This week, the ancient Indo European language, part one. Imagine you're a detective working on solving a crime, a murder, for example. But the murderer left no clues at all. No body, no weapon, no images, videos, recordings, or witnesses. Nothing at all? Nope, nothing. I'd probably give up. Same here. And it makes sense. If you have zero evidence, where do you even begin to try to solve a crime? But now, imagine that you're a linguist, a person who studies languages, and you're trying to uncover the secrets of a language that no one has spoken for the past 4,500 years, a language from the pre-scribe era, meaning there are no remains of written words. Not even one written letter? No, nothing. I give up. What am I supposed to do? It's a lost cause. Our episode today reveals an extraordinary story where linguists became detectives and solved a 4,500-year-old puzzle. In 1783, a British lawyer named William Jones arrived in India. He had the honor of being welcomed by the local British governor himself, even though there were many other politicians and officials from Britain already in India. He must have been someone special, this William Jones. Oh, he was. Jones's father passed away when William was only three years old. His father, a famous mathematician, left a small inheritance, just enough to give young William a proper education. Several years later, the boy was recognized for having unique and rare talent for languages. At age 10, he could already speak fluent Arabic, French, Italian, and Hebrew. By the time Jones was 20 years old, he spoke 28 languages. He was particularly attracted to Eastern cultures, Mesopotamia and Southeast Asia, which were considered at the time to be unusual and exotic. His expertise of languages, in addition to his familiarity of those cultures, got him a reputation of being an expert on what was then called the Orient, kind of like Indiana Jones. William Jones's talent in languages became well-known all over Europe. When he was only 22, the King of Denmark requested his help with translating a book from Farsi to French, and books that Jones wrote on Eastern languages were considered a breakthrough in the field of linguistics. William Jones was like a rock star of academics in the 1800s. He was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society, one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the world, and was even knighted. But prestige doesn't pay the bills. In order to sustain himself, Jones had to study law and work as a lawyer. Money was also what eventually brought him to India. In 1783, Jones heard about a vacant position as a Supreme Court judge in Calcutta. In Great Britain, India was thought of as a gold mine, since trading opium, spices, and gold made many British people very wealthy. Jones pulled some strings and won the position. The 
The socio-political status of the late 1800s in India was complicated. The British government ruled over a huge population, and they had a continuous fear of restlessness and rebellion. The local British governor of Bengal had a very liberal approach. He believed that in order to gain the trust of the local population, the British governance should rely on local laws and traditions instead of forcing foreign European laws on the people of India. Our guy, William Jones, identified with this approach, and in fact, he was known among political circles as a radical liberal due to his support of the colonies in America who were opposing the British government. Respect and appreciation of other cultures was deeply rooted in his character. But when Jones took the seat in the Calcutta Supreme Court, he found a flaw in the liberal approach. The Hindu laws and traditions were based on ancient books written in Sanskrit, an ancient Indian language. Sanskrit was familiar to scholars, but just like Latin, some studied it and conversed in it while never speaking it as a mother tongue. The British judges in India didn't speak Sanskrit, therefore they had to rely almost blindly on local scholars, known as pundits, who translated the ancient scripts. Jones feared the blind dependency on pundits since it encouraged bribery and corruption, which were hard to fight. So, Jones decided to take up the gauntlet himself. He would study Sanskrit and translate the scripts to English by himself. Cue to the music of Indiana Jones. Well, it wasn't that dramatic. And it wasn't easy. The local pundits weren't thrilled to give up their natural monopoly over the law, or in other words, to give up their source of power, and teach this British judge the secrets of their ancient language. It took a lot of effort for Jones to find a pundit who was willing to teach him Sanskrit. According to one version of the story, even this pundit wasn't thrilled to expose sacred traditions to the impure, cow-eating judge, so he made strict demands. Jones must study in a room that was ritually purified and on an empty stomach, except for a few cups of tea here and there. Jones agreed to all these demands. It's hard to tell whether the story is true or an exaggeration, but at the very least, it shows William Jones's determination to study Sanskrit. Within just one year, Jones had learned Sanskrit. He felt so confident with his abilities that he ruled in a rare case where two pundits couldn't agree over an interpretation of some old text. Jones studied the source, translated to English, and ruled a ruling that was considered a precedent. With his new knowledge of the ancient Indian language, Jones noticed a surprising and unexpected phenomenon. Quite a few words in Sanskrit resembled parallel words in Latin, Farsi, Greek, and English. For example, the word for mother in Sanskrit is matar, which is very close to the Farsi word madar, the Latin word mater, and the English mother. The term king of the gods in Sanskrit is deus pitar, which literally translates to sky father, pitar being father. In ancient Greek, the king of the gods was called Zeus-Pater, later known as Zeus. Here too, Pater is father. The Latin king of the gods is Eupiter, or in its modern version, Jupiter. And again, Peter is father. Jones realized that the resemblance between the Sanskrit Pitar, the Greek Pater, and the Latin Peter couldn't have been coincidental. This fact became clearer 
as Jones found more resembling words of different languages. Now, this sort of resemblance is common within European languages, and Europeans had been aware of it for quite some time. French, Spanish, and Italian are very close to each other both in grammar and vocabulary. For example, woman in Spanish is mujer, in Italian it is mujer, and in Old French it is mujer. The reason for this resemblance is that these three languages are descendants of Latin, the official language of the Roman Empire. That is why they are called the Romance languages. After the empire collapsed around the 5th century AD, the Latin local dialects became different languages, while a basic resemblance was perpetuated over generations. Another example is the resemblance between the Germanic languages, English and German for instance, and the Romance languages. The odd thing here, however, is that the Germanic languages developed separately from Latin. The common explanation for this resemblance has to do with the constant friction between the different cultures in the continent. The Germanic people traded, fought, conquered their neighbors and were conquered by them, allowing many foreign words to enter their language. Yet the resemblance Jones exposed couldn't be explained by that friction since the Indian culture and the European one were very distant from each other and hardly ever had any real contact. So the only other viable explanation for the resemblance was a common source, and that was the assumption that Jones wrote about in this article from 1788. Quote, The Sanskrit language, whether by its antiquity, is of a wonderful structure, more perfect than Greek, more copious than Latin, and more exquisitely refined than either, yet bearing to both of them a strong affinity, both in the roots of verbs and in forms of grammar, than could possibly have been produced by accident. So strong indeed, that no philologer could explain them all without believing them to have sprung from the same common source. End quote. In other words, in the same way Latin split to several languages, perhaps there was a proto-language that Sanskrit, Farsi, Greek and Latin had come from. The name given to the hypothetical language that Jones exposed was Proto-Indo-European, or just Indo-European, a name that denotes the connection between Sanskrit and the European languages. Jones wasn't the only scholar who identified the similarities between Sanskrit and Latin. There were a few other linguists who assumed the same several decades prior to Jones. But it was Jones's reputation as an expert of the Orient that validated the assumption and encouraged others to continue his work. His ideas really fired up the minds of European linguists. If Jones was right, and this proto-language was spoken, then it must be extremely ancient, since the cultures of the Persians and the Indians had separated thousands of years ago. Which brings us to the question we asked at the beginning. How can we research the Indo-European language? If it is so old, then it must have existed before writing was invented, and therefore we have no way to study or research it. No stories, no folk songs, no legal documents, or even recipes. A language that once existed and then vanished forever. Forever. Or did it?
CM Punk is proudly sponsored by Outbrain. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably used Outbrain today. You just didn't realize it until now. Outbrain is the service that recommends which stories to check out next when you're browsing your favorite sites. Didn't know there was a service for that? Ever wondered why you see the stories that you see on sites like CNN, ESPN and People magazine? It's because Outbrain uses algorithms to figure out what you might like to see next based on your interests and other readers like you. So, the next time you reach the end of a story on your favorite site and you're thinking about what's next, remember, Outbrain thinks of that for you. Outbrain. We could all use a little direction. Visit Outbrain.com for more info. Kelly, I'd like to introduce you to a very special man. This is Kevin Stroud. He is a lawyer with a great passion for linguistics and languages. Kind of like William Jones. I met Kevin through his History of English podcast, which chronicles the development of English from its most ancient roots. For a language nerd such as myself, Stroud's podcast is amazing, a combination of linguistics and history. My name is Kevin Stroud. I am the uh, host of the History of English podcast, which I started back in 2012. So many history podcasts focus on You know, military histories or social histories, uh, but very few, in fact, none that I knew of, uh, focused on linguistic history. So I always thought it would be interesting to tell the story of English, but tell it sort of as in the context of the overarching history of the kind of English-speaking people and uh, combine the linguistic history with the social and military and political history and sort of put it all together. And so that's really the concept of the podcast. As Stroud will tell us in a moment, the first breakthrough of the Indo-European studies wasn't related to science or linguistics, and the person responsible for it is none other than Napoleon. Okay, let's set the stage. The Holy Roman Empire was an odd creature in the European political map. It was founded in the 9th century AD, ruled over what we consider today to be Germany and Austria, and therefore included the majority of German speakers in Europe. But the Holy Roman Empire wasn't a nation-state the way we define it nowadays. Although the emperor had authorities, they were limited. The true rulers were the numerous kings, princes, and counts who governed roughly 300 small kingdoms, duchies, and counties who made up the Holy Roman Empire. In the early 19th century, Napoleon conquered vast German territories and annexed Rhineland to France. The French occupation sparked a nationalistic flame among the Germans, who understood that if the Germans wanted to become a real power in Europe, they should unite and join together. As long as the Germans were scattered around in all those small duchies, Germany wouldn't be able to face the other powers surrounding it. Well, you think about William Jones did his work in the late 1700s, so, you know, 1780s and 1790s. Uh, but then you get into the 1800s, and within Germany, uh, there's this burgeoning sense of nationalism. Uh, you know, Germany had, had just come off a period when it had been occupied by France during the Napoleonic period. And, you know, now France has kind of been pushed out, and we're, we're beginning a process by which the, the various German city-states and principalities are starting to unite Uh, they had, and that had, ha that had not happened yet, but that process was beginning. But uh, among all these various peoples uh, within the area that we know today as Germany, 
Uh, one thing they had in common was a language. They all share the same Germanic language. And there started to be, in combination with this interest, you know, this pan-German uh, nationalism that was occurring, uh, there was a strong interest in the, the Germanic language family and the, that thing that kind of united them together. And so there started to be an intense study of the history of the Germanic languages. Uh, you know, one of the, the very most important figures in that process uh, is a name that many people will recognize. It was uh, Jacob Grimm, one of the famous Brothers Grimm. Jacob Ludwig Karl Grimm was born in 1785 in the Landgraviate of Hesse Kassel, one of the smallest states in the Holy Roman Empire. Jacob and his younger brother Wilhelm were deeply affected by the rising patriotic feelings among the Germans. When they became scholars, they researched the history and culture of Germany and tried to figure out what elements joined the history of all Germans, the history that blurred any divisions, like folklore songs and stories. Together, Jacob and Wilhelm gathered and adapted old folk songs and tales, among them The Princess and the Frog, Sleeping Beauty, and Hansel and Gretel. Their book, Grimm's Fairy Tales, from 1812, was a great success and created a reputation for the brothers all around Europe. Right now, you might be wondering, what does Grimm's fairy tales have to do with the ancient Indo-European language? Well, as Stroud pointed out, Jacob Grimm's interest in languages also stemmed from these national tendencies. As a part of his literary work, he researched the roots of different Germanic languages— German, English, Swedish, Icelandic, and other Scandinavian languages, in order to identify and emphasize the uniting characteristics within that family of languages. He was focused on researching the nature of connections between words in different languages. Let me give you an example. Let's say I come home after a long work day only to find the hallway walls covered with scribbles and paintings which can only be cleaned with a bulldozer. Let's also assume that I see Marom, my youngest son, sitting on the sofa with color stains covering his hands. Uh-oh. Yeah, I would love to tell you that this is a fictional example, but I'm not that creative. Now, the question we must ask is, what is the connection between the boy and the wall? How can I be sure that the child is the one who earlier drew on the wall and is now sitting innocently on the sofa? Perhaps the marker colors on his hands are a result of an art project at kindergarten. Taking this analogy back to the world of languages and words, a resemblance between two words, for example, the English word father and the Greek word pater, can be explained in numerous ways. For instance, it's possible that English borrowed the word from Greek just as many languages around the world borrowed the word telephone or fax from English. Or the two words could have had a common source in a third language, a language that existed before them. A third possibility is that the resemblance is purely random. So how can we identify the nature of the connection? When it comes to my painted hallway, the answer is pretty clear since I know the actors of that play. But in the case of words, finding connections isn't that simple. As Jacob Grimm, what he did is he took not just 
dozens or hundreds, but thousands and thousands of words within the Germanic languages. And then he compared them to, you know, the words meaning the same thing in other languages like Latin and Greek. And what he was able to do is he concluded that there were certain patterns emerging here. Grimm analyzed numerous words in different languages, searching for patterns and repetitive structures. Let's look at the letters P and F. Grimm noticed that within the Germanic languages, the sound P systematically shifted to the sound F. For example, did you know that the words pen and feather come from the same Latin word? But they sound so different. True, they do sound different until you identify the sound shifts. The original Latin word was penna, meaning feather. It made its way to English through French, which, as you recall, is a dollar language of Latin, and from penna, the word became pen. And since in the past people used to dip feathers in ink in order to write, the meaning of the word shifted to describe stationary. But the same word, penna, survived in German as well, not before the sound P shifted to F, which then rolled to become the English word feather. In other words, the same original Latin word entered English through two different roots. The Germanic root included a sound shift from P to F. The same shift can be found in many other Latin words that passed through the German language. For example, foot and pad, as in pedometer, and fire and pyre, as in pyromaniac. Why did this shift happen? It's hard to say for sure, of course. It happened long ago as part of the natural development of a language, but it probably had to do with the resemblance of the sounds. When we pronounce the name of the letters, P and F, they sound quite different. But once you pronounce the sound they make, P and F, you can notice how close they actually are. In the sound of P, the air is blocked in the lips, while in the F sound, the air is completely free. But the sound is actually similar. In fact, in addition to the P and F sound shift, Jacob Grimm identified eight more shifts. For example, a shift from D to T. The Latin word for tooth is dentis, the source of words like dentist and dental. After the German sound shift from D to T, we get the word tooth, with the exact same meaning. By the way, this sound shift is still taking place nowadays. In modern American English, a word like bitter is pronounced as bitter. That reminds me of differences you can hear in regional accents in the U.S. Take the word cantaloupe, the fruit. I would normally pronounce it cantaloupe, leaving out the T. It should be cantaloupe, but I say cantaloupe. It just shows you how common it is to have regional shifts in accents. And here's another example. In Latin, the word cord means heart. From cord, we get the Spanish word corazón and the English terms cardiac and cardiology. Grimm identified a sound shift from the letter C to H, which is how we got the word heart with the same original meaning. And one last example. The Latin word for head is caput, from which we get words like captain, head of soldiers, the French word chef, head of the kitchen, and many others. Due to the sound shift from C to H, we got the word head. Capiche? And you know, Kelly, this reminds me of something 
I didn't understand when I first learned English. What's that? Why English has so many different words that describe almost the same thing. Why have a dentist instead of a tooth doctor? Why have a cardiologist instead of a heart doctor? Why make things so complicated? So how do you say cardiologist in Hebrew? Cardiologist. You know what? Never mind. Well, anyhow, the phenomenon of sound shift was identified before Jacob Grimm, but Grimm was the first to recognize it as a real pattern instead of a collection of random and coincidental examples. And now the linguistic sound shift is named after him, Grimm's Law. The shift didn't just happen anywhere. It was dependent on other factors, like the location of the letter P in a word. But once they knew these factors, linguists were able to reliably recognize them and the conditions it took for a sound shift to occur. Identifying the sound shifts brought Grimm to an important conclusion. And what he realized is that these words all came from the same source, but the sound had shifted. Basically what he did is he put two and two together and said, oh, well, at some point in the distant past, the early Germanic speakers, before the various Germanic languages existed as separate languages, back when it was one common language, they started pronouncing these words differently. They had a sound shift. In other words, Grimm realized that the sound shifts are responsible for the differences between existing words in Sanskrit, Farsi, Latin, Greek, and all other descendant languages of the Indo-European that Jones exposed. Grimm concluded that at some point within the distant, foggy past, the Indo-European speakers split into several ethnic groups who settled in different geographical areas. One of these groups, for example, started pronouncing the sound P as a F, and this was the seed from which the Germanic languages grew. Another group from which Latin developed kept the sound P. What is the significance of Grimm's law? Well, let's return to the crime analogy. Imagine that you are detectives trying to solve the case of a car theft. The original car had been taken apart and no longer exists in its original form. Now you're looking at three different cars and you suspect that the thieves dismantled pieces of the stolen car and installed them in the cars you are seeing now. So how do you know what the original car looked like? Well, if you can identify which parts were replaced, you can reconstruct the original vehicle. For example, if you know that in one car the doors were replaced, in the other the tires, and in the third the headlights, then you know what the doors, the tires, and the headlights of the original car looked like. And this is where other linguists took Grimm's work and they basically replied it in reverse. Grimm's law allows us to reverse engineer words. Take existing words in different languages, descendants of one common word in the Indo-European language, and apply Grimm's law on them in reverse. Restore F to P, T to D, H to C, and reveal the original word. Of course, there's no way to know if that's actually what the word sounded like, but Beyond the work that Grimm did, other linguists did the same work within the other language families. So within Latin, they were able to identify specific sound changes there as well. 
So what they were able to do is go in and take words within Latin or Greek or other families, language families, and they were able to reverse engineer those as well, applying the sound change rules in those languages in reverse. And what happens is if you take the, the sound changes within the Germanic languages and you kind of recreate or re-engineer English words and then you do the same thing within Latin and you go back and re-engineer those words and then within Greek, what they discovered is that in many instances they ended up with the same word. The word was virtually identical in all of those different languages. Since the Indo-European language became many different languages, from Farsi to Sanskrit to Latin and German, linguists could reverse engineer many words sharing the same meaning. If they ended up with the same word after reversing the sound shift, they determined that the word originated from the Indo-European language. For example, they took the English word sister, the Latin word soror, which brought us the word sorority, the Sanskrit word svasar, and the Farsi word zanhar, and I apologize for my pronunciation, well, all those words had the same meaning, sister. Then they reversed the sound shifts, and all the words became the same Indo-European word, suiser. This way, linguists were able to do something that at first sight seemed impossible. They reconstructed words of a language that disappeared more than 4,000 years ago, a language that was never even written down. Here are a few examples. The English word oxen was oxen. The English word mother was mater. Apple was able. Seven was septum. And one was oinos. More than a thousand words were discovered this way. This amazing achievement, reconstructing an ancient language from existing words, is mind-blowing and becomes even more impressive when we understand the repercussions of the linguistic work. These repercussions will be the theme of our next episode. We'll talk about the way scholars were able to combine clues and evidence from three very different disciplines, linguistics, archaeology, and genetics, in order to sketch a detailed portrait of the culture and lifestyle of the Indo-European speakers. We'll also answer some very interesting questions. For instance, how did a random genetic mutation contribute to the fact that more than half the modern world speaks languages that are descendants of the ancient Indo-European language? And is there a connection between the Semitic languages, Hebrew and Arabic for example, and the Indo-European language? All this and more, next time on Curious Minds. Goodbye. That's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Kevin Stroud again, the man behind the History of the English Language podcast, for appearing in the episode. If you haven't listened to the History of the English Language podcast yet, you definitely should. It's an amazing project, and I can't recommend it enough. I've already binge-listened to roughly 60 episodes of the podcast. The address is historyofenglishpodcast.com. And if speaking of thank yous, 
I want to thank some of our listeners. Blue Eyed Veer and LD78, who wrote great reviews about the podcast on iTunes. Brian from Quimby Town, Steve Butterworth, and Frank from Belgium for helping with spreading the word on Twitter and commenting on the website. Thanks. And another podcast I'd like to mention here is the Product Startup Podcast, hosted by Philip Valika, a podcast for entrepreneurs and people who are in the process of building their own businesses. Each episode features an interview with a different entrepreneur or an expert with tips and insights on various topics related to starting a business. I particularly enjoyed the third episode of the show, which featured Heidi Pungartnik, an experienced web designer. As someone who already created at least seven websites for my various podcasts, I can still say that I learned so much from the interview. For example, Heidi talked about the importance of white spaces in your website design or which colors you should pick for your call to action button. These were extremely helpful tips and I'm actually going to make some changes to the Curious Minds website based on that episode. So head on to theproductstartup.com and have a listen to Philip Valika's podcast. A link to the show will also be in our website, www.cmpod.net. If you enjoyed our podcast, you can help us grow and reach new listeners by writing a review about Curious Minds in iTunes. Tell your friends, family, and co-workers about the show. Our website is at cmpod.net, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes, plus our brand new series called Astronomy Shorts, in which each episode will reveal fascinating details and facts about celestial objects, space, and our universe as a whole. CMPod are Kelly O'Loughlin, editor and co-host, Nir Sayag is our sound engineer, Danny Timor in charge of BizDev, and me, Ran Levy, producer, writer, and host. See you again next week. Bye-bye.